0: All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner. I'm joined this week by Mike O'Connor, my colleague over at The Athletic Philadelphia. How you doing, Mike?
1: I'm doing good, man. Um, I was just, right before we started uh, recording this, I was watching the Celtics and Spurs trying to figure out why the Celtics aren't a better basketball team, and I still have <laughs> no answers at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they will go through stretches for weeks at a time where they look very, very good, and then they'll drop Four in a row. Granted, three of them now against pretty good competition and the Charlotte Hornets. Um, but that collapsed the other night against Charlotte when they held that big lead hanging in the fourth quarter and they got smoked. They are a team that feels very volatile. Um, A little bit like the Sixers at times, uh, where they can be up or down. All the Sixers lately have been way more up than down. But they're a team where I think every other fan base, every other top team, Toronto, Milwaukee, are looking at, like, we can beat them they're they're much weaker than we thought we had a better chance than maybe would have thought before the season started. The Sixers, yeah, we'll see um, uh, I think there's still a lot of acknowledgement that Boston tends to bring out the weakest parts of the Sixers. Some of that narrative, of course may have changed this past week, and that will be a focus of this podcast, of course, but
1: yeah, I think. I think the Sixers did make up some ground in the in the narrative uh, department this week, for sure. I mean, there I, I wrote about it in my preview piece, but it just felt like there was such a psychological weight heading into that Celtics game. And I mean, if they would have lost, and especially if the game would have continued like it did in the first half and they lost handily, that would have been, I think, a huge blow psychologically, and just just in the, the national perception of the Sixers would have. Would have taken a, a drop down, so it was definitely good for them to uh, to finally get that win.
0: Yeah, you know it's funny. You rewatch the Celtics game, and there are a couple things that that jump out. You know, and 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 we'll get into these more. But first of all, Embiid asserting himself in a way that he hasn't against that team pretty much ever. Second of all, you had Jimmy Butler there to take advantage of mismatches, and you finally had the Celtics worrying about who they're going to stick a defender on and not just the Sixers doing so and that was good to see too. But the third is I mean they made shots that it seems like against the Celtics they never freaking make. How many games against the Celtics over the last 2 years? You know, you're now talking about 8 regular season games and 5 playoff games. Have we said hey, the Celtics made shots the Sixers didn't and quality shots might not have been that big of a disparity. But when it came down to it, Kyrie Irving makes a tough shot against Jimmy Butler that's well defended. In the playoffs, the Celtics made more open threes than the Sixers did. Finally, for once, for really what felt like the first time in those 13 games, the Sixers made tough shots, the Celtics didn't, and that went a long way. And does that, you know, was there too much difference to, between when the Sixers lost by three, you know, back in February and the Sixers won that game? Probably not. Like if you're projecting out to can the Sixers compete against the Celtics in a seven-game series, those games, how the the teams performed in those two games are probably, you have, the confidence level doesn't change all that much, or at least the probability doesn't change all that much. But the confidence level changes dramatically. And the Sixers really need one of those games where those tough step-back jumpers by Jimmy Butler fell, where Joel Embiid asserted himself and got to the line and didn't turn it over, where things just went the Sixers' way. And it felt like so many times in that matchup over the past two years, it hasn't. And it certainly does have a drastic impact on the Sixers confidence level, like you said.
1: For sure, for sure. And I thought not, not just making shots for the Sixers, I thought it was big for them that, you know, they were, they were the team that sort of made smart plays and just made adjustments down the stretch when that's normally the Celtics doing that. Um, I mean, the, the Celtics just, for example, they blew a couple switches. There was that one play where, uh, Tobias Harris screen for Jimmy Butler and Irving, and uh, Tatum messed up the switch, and then Jimmy Butler faked the shot and fed Tobias Harris for a dunk. Um, the Celtics had a couple of just strange sequences on the offensive end at the end of that game. Tatum missed an open three at the end, so it was it was funny to see the uh, the roles reversed, where the Celtics were the team that really blew the game in a lot of lot of ways, and uh, the Sixers were making all the right plays.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um All right, so I guess we'll start off with Joel Embiid. Um, obviously had a monster game, uh, ended up with 37 points, 22 rebounds, 4 assists, only 3 turnovers, which when you consider the number of possessions he used, 3 turnovers is a really low number. 20 of 21 from the free throw line. You know, when you look at Embiid's performance, and it, it's, this is a very poorly timed podcast where we have to talk about the Atlanta game as well, and, and you, there's a, a little bit to bring you down. But when you look at his performance, there are certain points in the game where, you know, the Sixers were faltering. Many points throughout the first, really three quarters of that game. And Joel Embiid really almost single-handedly kept them close, like kept, gave them a puncher's chance at the end, which Jimmy Butler, of course, then took advantage of. But you know, Embiid scoring like 10 out of 12 points for the Sixers. His own personal 8-0 run. Things of that sort that MVP caliber players do. And it really was, you know, for a team that has had his number, and we've talked so much time, if you want to beat the Boston Celtics, you can't have Joel Embiid outplayed by Al Horford. Uh, You have to get your best player to the point where he is the best player on the floor. And that hasn't been the case for a long time. That was very much the case against the Celtics. And if you want, you know, we talk about shot variance and shots going in, shots not going in, things of that sort. To me, the one thing that was really different is Joel Embiid, and he really did a good effort. You pointed this out, I think, in your um, observations the day after. Um When I rewatched it, it was really evident. Where he was receiving the ball on his post-ups was drastically different than where he has. When he only has to make one dribble and a move rather than two or three or four dribbles, the world is just so much easier for him, Um and I thought he did a really good job of, of that against the Celtics and in the first quarter against the Hawks before it all fell off the rails.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and credit to Joel because after the game, I mean, he went out of his way to say that that was his focus coming in. And he said he felt like, um, every time he plays the Celtics for one reason or another, he felt like he shies away from contact. And he said he just wanted to come out and be extra physical. And he he, he definitely was. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I pointed this out in, in that piece, but I feel like one of the reasons that Horford and Baines are able to stop him uh so well, at least in the past, is because they're they're so strong, you know, containing Joel off the dribble. Joel likes to get the ball in the mid post, make, you know, a jab step and try and drive to the basket. And both of those guys just absorb the contact so well. But Embiid has, I think, three inches on Baines and uh whatever, four or five inches on Horford. And what he was really able to do was just seal those guys off really deep and get a quick jump hook over them. Um, that in addition to just Bowling into them and drawing fouls. But, you know, I, like you said, it was just, it just seemed to be a focus of his and, uh, and he was really successful doing it.
0: Yep. Uh, let's see what else from that game. Like I said, it's kind of a shame that we're recording this now because we do have to then pivot to the Atlanta game, which after the Sixers had a six game winning streak and two big wins over the Bucks and the Celtics, that does put a little bit of a damper on it. Not a great game from the bench, and we'll get to that. There aren't very many great games from the bench lately.
1: No, they scored Good eight points.
0: From, what was that? Eight
1: points. the, yeah. this, the, the Sixers uh, starters scored 110, and the bench scored eight.
0: Eight points on like 16 shots, too. I mean, they were they were dreadful. But at least you got the standout defensive performances from that group. Uh, only four minutes from Boban in that game. Like we all sort of expect, he is virtually unplayable against that team. It's not only just like, you know, sometimes you talk like, oh, well, he can match up against Aaron Baines. Well, no, he really can't because you still have to deal with Kyrie Irving off the pick and roll. And what in the hell is he going to do with Kyrie Irving off of a pick and roll? It's just a team that is very hard for him to get minutes against. That is a, and we've all said this, that is maybe the biggest concern right now, is what in the hell do you do with that backup center spot? You know, Boban obviously is, you're going to struggle to play him against many of the good teams, many of the teams you'll face in the playoffs. um, Jonah Bolden just doesn't look like he's ready from a scheme or a decision making standpoint. And Mike Scott is Mike Scott. And when he's not making shots, is he, you know, slightly more switchable than Mike Muscala or some of the people they've had before? Sure. He's also not the strongest interior defender or defensive rebounder. And, I mean, look, he makes his share of mistakes. Um, against the Hawks, that was real bad. That, that yes. turnover late and that foul were just killers. They were, there's nothing scheme about that. He just made, you know, compounded one awful decision with an even worse decision. And he's prone to moments like that. And when his shot isn't going in, you know, look, Mike Scott's a rotation player. Like he will be in the playoff rotation. He would be on a playoff rotation on a good team. Uh, the problem is he's really your only reliable one outside of maybe James Ennis. And the fact that those words just came out of my mouth kind of show you exactly where the Sixers are.
1: Yeah, they do. And it, it's easy to imagine, um, you know, a guy like Mike Scott making th- those sorts of mistakes in a playoff series that can outright cost you a game or a series. And, and that, that's, that's kind of a horrifying thing to, uh, to envision. But, um, Going back to the uh, the backup center, can under I just think that you have to roll the dice with Jonah Bolden. Um, I mean, Boban and Amir Johnson are just not physically able to compete, uh, especially in a playoff series. And I I do not feel great about Jonah Bolden going into a playoff series. I think he'll just foul the hell out of everybody and set moving screens and take a bunch of shots that he shouldn't. But at least he can physically compete. He's not just a walking bullseye on defense, uh, from a switching perspective. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that's their best option. Uh, Brett keeps talking about how they have to see what they have in Bobon, but I think they've seen it. I, yeah. I think they've, they've seen it.
0: <laughs> no, they, they, you know what you have. You know, I think that was the position I had back in February, you know, ride Jonah out, see how much you can count on him. He's the only one you have who physically has a chance. And that's true. But I also think at this point, I understand why they wouldn't have any confidence in him. You know, it's one thing to be able to make the rotations and the reads. It's another thing to even know where you're supposed to be. And it's real. Like, I I understand when coaches don't like putting out players who they don't have confidence in their decision-making. Like I, I I get that. I think they're going to end up going small a lot. I think you're going to see a lot of Mike Scott, and Ben Simmons as your backup five in the playoffs—that might be your most frequent, you know, non embed center rotation. If I'm being completely how, honest, how
1: doable? How doable do you think that is? Just out of, I'm I'm curious, like your perspective on like Simmons at the five? Because I, I personally, there was a time where I would have advocated for it, but like I look at I look at Ben defending Al Horford for stretches. Um, in like the second quarter of the Celtics game, and he's just no match. And I don't think Ben defends the post very well. I mean, it's still, and it still might be their best option. It still might be their best option, but I don't know. What what do you think?
0: Well, I mean, that's sort of two separate questions. Um, is it optimal? No, not defensively at least. Like we all know Ben's limitations as a rim protector and. You know, that's a big concession to make. You're right, he's not a great post defender either. I think there's some benefits offensively. Like I think the Dunker spot is much more of a natural position for him when you don't have a a, a big man that you're posting up. Like on a Jimmy Butler's Bias Harris drive, I think that could actually be beneficial from a, a spacing perspective. So I think offensively it makes sense, but yeah, defensively it's not great. Um the problem is you've got four bad options, and you're trying to find the one that's maybe not great. Um, I, I, it's it's To me, it's a shame that they're, and a failure that they're in this position to begin with. Um, is it the one, you know, I, I think my optimal answer would be the one you would want to go with is a seasoned, experienced Jonah Bolden, uh, but we do not have that at our disposal. So.
1: They do not. And uh, yeah, it, it, it is something that I think the front office deserves a little bit of, of grief for her. I mean, for sure. yep. not going out and signing a real backup center this summer was a really strange move. I was surprised to see Amir Johnson back, even if that wasn't totally a basketball decision, if it was more just because everybody likes Amir and they want him around. But
0: I mean, I think you know, they thought I mean, Mike Muscala was going to be legitimate.
1: Yes. Which was n- incorrect. Um, but yeah. And you know, you just have a, like Joel Embiid, we all penciled him in to miss twelve to fifteen games every year, and you know you're going to need quality backup minutes at that position, and just just definitely, definitely a a mistake by the front office to not get a real backup center this summer.
0: Yep, yep. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 as much as I mean the whole bench, like really. It, James Ennis, we've said this, I think, on the last podcast, but he ran away from the tournament, and he is shooting, what is he up to? He's up to th- and even 30% in his Sixers career from three. You expect that to go up. You expect that to approach his career average of 35%, but he's not letting the world on fire, but he's far and away run away with that backup wing tournament. And then, I mean, TJ and Boban are very situational, ineffective 75% of the time type of players and that's not exactly the you know seventh and eighth man you want to have in your playoff rotation um but hopefully the uh the starters can log heavy heavy minutes all right so i guess moving off of that before we have to get in that dreadful atlanta game overall thoughts on the pairings that brett has sort of settled on here now where he brings in teat i mean again let's try not to focus so much on the bench because we know that they are insufficient but where he brings in Boban, TJ, and Mike Scott and as a first subs to pair with Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, and then later brings in JJ Redick, Joel Embiid, and Ben Simmons to pair with, what is it, Mike Scott and James Ennis. So those kind of two five-man pairings that he's seemingly settled on now as these stagger rotations.
1: Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what to think of it yet. I think we need to see a little more of a sample, but... uh I don't particularly love it. Uh if if I were in charge, I think the way I would stagger it is uh Butler and Embiid together and then Simmons and Harris together. Um I just think the that
0: And then where, where where do you float JJ to? Uh
1: mostly with the with Embiid and Butler. Okay. Um and let Simmons and Harris try to uh try to run the show with with three bench guys and just fly up and down the floor. Um but, yeah, I mean, with playing Simmons and Embiid together for the entire game, I mean, those two guys not getting a minute separate from each other, I think is a little strange just because we all know how much their two styles conflict, obviously. I mean, Ben wants to fly up and down the floor, and for Joel you need to slow it down and feed him in the post, and then you have to worry about Ben spacing off of him. I mean, he just makes Joel's life a little bit harder. Um and i guess you know the counter argument is that i think it's been really good for butler uh and to a lesser degree harris um we've seen jimmy now i mean i think each of his last 5 games he's scored over 20 points and been really good and really found uh his place in the offense and looked really comfortable um and maybe that's something that uh that just you know not being with simmons and embiid all the time is helping him with that but i just think that you have to cater to joel more so than anyone and having simmons with him is definitely going to hurt him uh and it's it's definitely not helping ben with you know just the the way that ben likes to play so i'm i'm not very optimistic on it maybe it's just an experiment thing on on brett's part but i can't see that being uh the optimal the optimal combination in the playoffs
0: yeah i mean i certainly think um that it was a move to get Jimmy Butler going and, and specifically to get him more aggressive. You know, I think that the, there was a little bit of feeling out period with, with Jimmy where he was trying to figure out, you know, exactly when to be aggressive, when to pick his spots. And I think removing Simmons both because of his floor spacing, but also because of how much he has the ball in his hands, you know, Jimmy is going to have much more of a, shot creation and initiation responsibility when he's paired with TJ McConnell than when with Ben Simmons. And I think that is a lot to do with trying to get him going and trying to maximize Jimmy, probably both because you need to get Jimmy Butler doing more than he was doing in the first 10 or so games with Tobias Harris, but also because, um, you know, you want to keep him happy and Jimmy likes running the offense. He likes being a quote unquote point guard. He likes doing, Things of that sort. So I think it's probably a two pronged part there. And I think it did help. You know, I think that there was moments from, from Jimmy that we haven't seen previously to that, especially after the Tobias Harris acquisition. It seemed like there was a little bit of a feeling in that period. So I think from that perspective, it was fine. But I agree with you that the question has come down to how much does that maximize Joel Embiid? And you know, we've talked about that fit with them for a long time. Is that trade off worth it? Do you need to do more to get Embiid proper spacing around him in the post and on drives to the basket? I think that is a fair concern. I think my other concern would be, you know, do you have enough defense there in that Butler-Harris lineup? Um And I don't know. You know, I'd, I'd really have to dive into the numbers there to see how well they're playing. Off the top of my head, I do worry about that. But those would be my two concerns, maximizing Embiid, and then also maximizing or keeping them competitive. While Joel and Ben Simmons are both on the bench.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, the other thing that, uh, we forgot to mention is that when you play, uh, Joel and Ben together, you have to have like a couple minutes in there somewhere where TJ is also playing with them just because they have, they only have eight guys, right? And, uh, and that, that spacing is not very pretty and it doesn't, doesn't help anybody. Nobody is really going to be able to operate well in that, uh, in that environment.
0: It is worth noting. For as much as we talk about the Embiid Simmons fit and and specifically in maximizing Joel, the net ratings when those two are on the court over the last two years have been outstanding. Uh, pretty consistently outstanding too. So for as much as, as maybe from a a you know, a conceptual fit, uh and certainly a stylistic fit, maybe their defense is just so good that yeah, you might not get quite optimal Joel Embiid in the post. But you can make up for it by being a, the best version of the Sixers you can be defensively. So maybe that is, um, you know, that is offsetting that a little bit.
1: That's true. That's true as well. Let's Um,
0: see. Jimmy Butler usage in that lineup is actually only a 22% usage rate. Huh. That's interesting. hmm. I would have thought that would have been higher. Uh, looking through the numbers.
1: I mean, it is true that a lot of Jimmy's scoring lately Comes has just late been like erupting in the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah, with the, the starting quarter. lineup. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. That's interesting. Uh Mitten, He is certainly handling the ball more. I guess he's not finishing plays quite at the level that you would expect. Um He has a 72% true shooting percentage with that lineup, which is obviously outstanding. Uh But not finishing quite as many possessions as we would have expected. But like we just kind of talked ourselves through, he certainly makes a lot of plays in the fourth quarter, and that is largely with the starting lineup, or at least much of the starting lineup on the court with him. So, interesting. Would be worth a deep dive on those numbers, which I'm not going to do in the middle of a podcast because I came unprepared. Uh, But certainly something worth inspecting. Um, these Embiid-Simmons two-man lineup, two-man pairing, plus 7.6 net rating this season. And that was a plus... Yeah, when slow internet connections screw up a podcast hurry up
1: are you looking for what it was last year
0: yeah i'm just getting a spinning dial on nba com.
1: i think it was about the same
0: perfect about podcast same. way to go nba.com thank you
1: <laughs> we've we've looked at those numbers so many times we should have you them would think it should now. be
0: on the top of my head absolutely yeah let me take away some of the filters Nope, fields are blank. What in the hell? All right, fuck it. We'll just – it was a good number last year. Moving on.
1: It was a big number.
0: A big number. The biggest numbers. Bigly number. Um, <laughs> all right, let's go on to that Hawks debacle. Uh, But real quick before we do that, a word from our sponsor, BetOnline.ag. March Madness is here with multiple games daily. Get your game on with BetOnline.ag. Go online or use your mobile phone to sign up today at BetOnline.ag and try in-game live betting where you can participate with all the action with every play. And remember, use the promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. Once again, go to clnsmedia.com slash Sixers Beat and use the promo code CLNS50 for a 50% sign-up bonus. That's clnsmedia.com slash Sixers Beat Promo code CLNS50 for that 50% cash back bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Okay, so um, Atlanta. How much do you care about that dreadful loss to Atlanta the other night?
1: Very little. Um, I do think there were a few things to point out. First thing, the remarkable ease of... With which every Hawks guard beat every Sixer defender off the dribble. I mean, it was just like...
0: Plus 15.6. There, I got it. Wow. Got it. Alright, go. I'm sorry. Go.
1: Uh, anyway, yeah. Every Hawks guard pick any Sixer defender on a Switch, whether it was, uh, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Mike Scott, anybody. Take them on a Switch. Just blow right by them uh draw in Joel Embiid, and kick out to the corner to a shooter or dump it off to a big man for a dunk. Um That was the entire game. Rinse, repeat. And it's a long Well, now, game. hold
0: on. They they also tried to then trap the pick and roll, and then they dumped it off to the roll man or kicked Who it out to the corner. Rinse, yeah. repeat. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Um And that, you know, we've been talking about it all year. They don't have anybody that can defend point guards. And you have to worry what that would mean in a playoff series with, say, the Nets that have three really, really good point of attack ball handlers and creators. Um, yeah, I mean, th- that that's really what that whole game was. I mean, obviously the Sixers did appear really interested in playing defense, and if they were, it would have been a different story. But, I mean, that's a huge concern, and thats that's been there all year. That's nothing new. Um, the other thing that I found really interesting and it gave me flashbacks to, uh, maybe nobody even remembers this game, but like maybe their second game of the year, their third game of the year, they played Atlanta at home and Lloyd Pierce just had the Hawks completely ignore Markel Fultz off the ball and would send, like Kent Bazemore was guarding him at one point and Fultz was in the corner and, uh, Bazemore was on the opposite elbow. Like, (laughs) like
0: Does that not feel like three seasons ago though? Like Brett very oh, often does. brings up, you know, I've had three different teams and at some point like, Brett, can you just stop saying that? Like we, we get it. You've made a lot of transactions, but when you think about Mark Hill Fultz starting an NBA basketball game for the Philadelphia 76ers and JJ Reddick coming off the bench in the first half, but starting the second half, like whoo boy, that feels like so long ago. It just, it, it amazes me every time we bring something like that up. Go ahead.
1: And by the way, at the beginning of the season, that Sixers team stunk. They would have been the <laughs> fifth or sixth seed if they didn't make any trades. I had to watch one of those games a while back. I'd rewatched one of the games and I just thought, wow, that team had absolutely no juice. Anyway, um yeah, one of the things that, uh, that Lloyd Pierce did last night was he did the same thing to TJ McConnell that he did to Fultz and just had his defender completely abandon him. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I I think that's another thing that, uh, that teams are going to do to TJ in the playoffs. And I I don't know what the Sixers can do to counter it. And one thing they did in Milwaukee was they had TJ just like flash to the elbow and TJ would just take like a 14 footer off the catch. And that kind of worked, but it's still really concerning that both of your point guards, your point guards have to stand in the dunker spot when they play off the ball it's it's really they're such a strange basketball team man um <laughs> yeah and my third observation from that game is that boban hit a 3 um and we watched we watched a basketball game where boban marjanovic and alex len both hit threes and ben Simmons still has not hit one <laughs> yeah
0: it is not the way you would optimally design a team in 2019 it is not the uh, the route the nba has gone that is for sure Post up big man, non shooting center, go make it work. Um. Yep. Which I th- I think explains a lot of the occasional clunk partly that, partly inexperienced, partly um you know, just high risk, high reward plays from both the system and the, the, the players. Um you know anytime you post up a big man, it's gonna be high risk, high reward. But yeah, that is not that is not the direction the NBA has trended. Um you know, the Sixers, it's interesting. You look at it, and they give up, I think, the fourth fewest three-pointers in the league, which is always a more important defensive metric than how many the other team makes. Um I think the Sixers are actually first in opponent three-point percentage. That's probably fluky. Not always. Like, Boston is pretty consistently at the top of the league in opponent three-point percentage. Some of that has to do with who you're leaving open and what kind of shots you're giving up. By and large, opponent attempts is a bigger number, but the sixers are, are excellent in both. Sixers are give up the third fewest percentage of opponent threes from the corners. They give up, I think, the third or the fourth fewest overall corner threes. And by and large, those I think are good indicators. You look at their overall defensive performance, and it's never been quite what we expected to be. And I wrote about this today, but there are certain trade-offs that the Sixers sort of willingly made to deny those three-point shots and to keep Joel Embiid at the rim in the paint. And when you have a team like Atlanta, and this is sort of the blueprint for every team that's kind of surprised the Sixers this season, but when you have someone like Trey Young who can pull up from almost anywhere on the court, and it forces the Sixers to kind of either switch, maybe... Screens they wouldn't want to switch or trap or hedge pick and rolls that they wouldn't want to trap or hedge. Like they just have never been crisp in their rotations. So you have a team that doesn't force turnovers, in part because your perimeter defenders are JJ Reddick and TJ McConnell, in part because you play very soft pick and roll coverage. But now, not only do you not force turnovers, but you're giving up shots at the rim. You're giving up those open corner threes. A player like that, a player like Kyrie Irving, a player like D'Angelo Russell, can sort of bring out the worst, worst aspects of the Sixers' defense without really allowing them to play to their strengths. And, you know, I think that game was 80%. The Sixers just were not engaged defensively. And that's not a huge concern. But I do think there's a part of it where that kind of style of an offensive player has just troubled this team all year. And part of it is scheme. A big part of it is personnel. Um, when your best on-ball perimeter defenders are 6'10 and 6'8, it's not exactly optimal. That is a weakness we've been crying about on this team all year, and I think it rears its head against players like that. But yeah, they whenever they have to bring that third man in, that coverage, it just breaks down very quickly. Um, and for a team that doesn't really give up much from the corners, they sure did last night, and it killed them.
1: That they did um i've I've been thinking about those numbers a lot lately the uh the corner threes and just how well they defend the three point line. It's interesting because I don't believe they were quite as good at that last year
0: no, that they were mid-pack. much
1: better on defense yep it's strange i don't I don't know the correlation there also I believe the sixers are um among the best in the league in transition defense, which I found surprising just based on my eye test, but it was true. Um, and that makes it all the more surprising, uh, that they're, that they're ranked this low in defense. Not that 11 is terrible, but you would think that they would be better.
0: What I really found interesting when I looked at it, there's not been a single month, like if you just take the games played in October, the games, just the games played in November, not, you know, a progressive ranking, but just those games, just the December games, there's never been a month where they've been better than 11th and never been a month where they've been lower than 13th. Like they have, very consistently been barely above average, which isn't necessarily the goalpost you're aiming for. You know, I think, I think the Sixers would probably argue, Hey, we've gotten burned by mid-range shots where we foul people a little more than you would want. And I think a lot of that's inexperienced. A lot of that is, um, you know, just not having the kind of defenders to defend straight up. Um, but they foul a lot. They don't force any turnovers at all. I think they're the third worst team in the league at forcing turnovers. But they defend the three. They generally defend the rim. And they defend the corners. And I think they would argue that, hey, if give it enough time to normalize. That mid-range shooting will fall back. Um, the will trend closer to our expected value of the shots that we've given up. And it's never quite happened with this team. And I think part of it is they're not that great at defending the rim, especially when Joel Embiid's out of the game because I think that's where a lot of the blown rotations really show itself. So I think they could be better in that regard. Um certainly their their defense from the center position when Joel Embiid's off the court leaves something to be desired. But yeah, this is a team that has never really felt like it has quite the bite defensively. And there's a lot of individual reasons you can pin your you know individual reasons you can get behind. Um, but I don't know exactly how you address that here in the next couple of Couple of weeks. I don't think, I don't think it's, like, I, I know a lot of people will want to harp on the switching defense. I don't think that is the crux of their problem. I do think there are times they could be a little more selective, but I think by and large, you know, I think the, like, when you look at why you're not giving up the volume of threes they're giving up, and that is pretty directly related to, to being able to switch somewhat competently as much as they do, even if it's not maybe quite as competent as they think they are.
1: Yeah, um if I were to, you know, if I were to gauge my level of concern, I would say I, mildly concerned. I don't think it's anything worth freaking out about. I I think everyone on this team um can take it up a notch in the playoffs and I think that they will. Um it really has been surprising how much Jimmy Butler has coasted on defense, but I think that he clearly has another gear and that we'll probably see that in the playoffs. Um Simmons at times takes plays off. I mean, Embiid has had a couple of nights like this like last night in Atlanta. Whew. So, I don't know. I, I think they clearly have another gear. There are some foundational issues, but um, we'll see. We'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think number one problem with the team defensively is lack of on-ball defense, um, especially not only JJ, but, you know, TJ, the bench. Um, you just don't have that kind of kind of defender. Uh, the backup center, um, having Boban unplayable as frequently as he is, having Jonah not yet ready to be that high-level decision-maker. Um, you know, and then a little bit of familiarity. Like, communication with this team definitely does not seem to be where it needs to be and where they would need to be to maximize the talent that they do have. Those, to me, are the three big concerns. And I think, you know, a, a team like Boston with, with Kyrie, I think, concerns me more than either Milwaukee or Toronto. Not necessarily from a talent perspective. But from a stylistic perspective, like I, I, I have more confidence that they can defend, and this is going to change. I have more confidence that they can keep Giannis not in check because nobody keeps Giannis in check, but that they can compete against him and stay home on the, then again, you know, I think if you go back to that Bucks game, Giannis got his and they got 53 point attempts. So I don't know how well they really defended them, how much that was. Milwaukee missing shots that they normally make, although they shot like 30, I want to say mid 30s from three. Um, but from a stylistic perspective, I'd rather stick Joel on Giannis and live with everyone else than try to figure out exactly what to do with Kyrie Irving. Again, just from a stylistic perspective, not that I think Giannis would average less in a series than Kyrie would against the Sixers, but if you're talking about a Delta, I think the Sixers have a chance to compete against that style more than a, more than a guy like Kyrie.
1: For sure. I mean, the Bucks are the one team out of uh, those other three, um, Toronto and Boston, or yeah, those other two, Toronto and Boston, where Joel has somebody to guard. Um, you can just stick him on Giannis. Whereas, you know, if you're playing Boston, you have to worry about what Horford pick and pops are going to do to him. Or if you're playing Toronto, you have to worry about what Serge Ibaka or Mark Gasol pick and pops are going to do to him. Whereas with Milwaukee, you just stick Joel on Giannis and you just let him go. Every, everywhere else, every other matchup is, gets pretty complicated.
0: I do wonder if they, if they met in the playoffs, how much could you go to Joel on Giannis? Cause I, first of all, I think Giannis is the best person for Joel to defend. And I think Joel is the best defender the Sixers have against Giannis. Like he was really the only one that even remotely slowed him down in that game. It was comical when I went back and looked at the matchups. Giannis scored, I think it was like 22 points on 24 team possessions of Milwaukee when he was defended by anyone other than Simmons or Embiid. So I was 22 points on five for five shooting in 24 Milwaukee possessions. A lot of people are going to do that math in their head. Oh, that's under a point possession. No, that's not 24 possessions that Giannis used. That was 24 possessions by Milwaukee where he scored, I think 60% of the team's points over that span and his eyes just lit up. Like it was a parade to the free throw line. When the Sixers didn't foul, they didn't stop a shot and he just, he just took over. And when you're talking about, you know, 22 possessions over the course of an NBA game is like maybe eight minutes of playing time. And he scored 22 points in those eight minutes with using maybe 12 shooting possessions when you factor into free throws and field goal attempts. And that just can't happen. So I think Joel Embiid did the best on him of any player on the Sixers. And I think. You could credibly say that Joel Embiid is the one most capable of doing that over a seven-game series. The question is, can you expect him to exert that kind of energy defensively, chasing Giannis and trying to meet him at the rim? And what kind of impact does that have then on his offensive game and what he's able to give you? It didn't have an impact on him in that game, but can he – You know, I think he ended up defending Giannis like 40 possessions in that game. Can he do that 60 and do that in a seven-game series? It's a lot to ask. But it might also be the Sixers' best chance of winning.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt it's their best chance. But you're right; you have to worry that attrition will set in um, with Embiid. But who knows? I mean, I mean, attrition I think is a concern no matter where you go. Like, even with the Celtics, when he defends uh, Horford, pick and pops, their best bet is just to switch him on Irving. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that is their best option. And the problem is that you can't do that for 48 minutes. Um, yeah. Joel will get too tired. So, I mean, that, that is something they'll have to weigh pretty much everywhere. But, uh, you know, I, I, I guess that's sort of just something that from a coaching perspective, you just kind of have to gauge how Joel's feeling and, and how, how far you can push him with that stuff.
0: All right. So let's pivot off of there and then we'll end this podcast without going. Too deep. Uh, we don't need to have an hour-long podcast here. But let's look at the first-round matchups. Now, let's say that the Sixers are locked in at the three seed. And right now they have, what, I think a three-game lead on Boston, four games on the Pacers. So you're looking at, you know, pretty much Brooklyn or Detroit. Um, I think the Heat are two or three games back from, from, from Brooklyn for that sixth spot. So let's just limit the Brooklyn to Detroit. Who would you prefer to face in the seven, in the first round of playoffs if you are the Sixers?
1: I think it would have to be Detroit, but I don't think that's like a slam dunk matchup for them. I mean, the Sixers have one guy who can defend Blake Griffin and that's Embiid. And then you have to worry about whoever you're putting on Drummond, whether it's Tobias Harris or Ben Simmons. Um, that's a huge liability from a rebounding perspective, from an offensive rebounding perspective. Um, I mean, it's easy to look at the Nets and say, oh, with with D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert, I mean, how do the Sixers guard them? But, I mean, Blake Griffin is, like, unbelievable. If the Pistons were any better, he would be an MVP candidate. Um, like, he gave them, what, was it 50 earlier this year? Um, and the Sixers just don't have, I mean, we talk about how they don't have guys to defend point guards. Who do you have besides Embiid who's going to guard Blake Griffin at all? Um, it's not. It's not like I said, not a slam dunk matchup. But I do think it's slightly better uh, than the Nets, just given how dynamic those three guys are um, off the dribble. And you know, the the Nets are just they play really, really hard, and they're well coached. Um, not that the Pistons aren't, but the, I think the Pistons just have fewer guys um, yeah. and. You know, the Nets, I think, cut at the Sixers' biggest weakness.
0: Yeah, that they do. I I, I think, you know, the Sixers won the season series against the Pistons 3-1, to winning the last three games. Uh, one of those games was a blowout, uh, the last one. But the other two were relatively close. Like one of them was a six-point win, and one of them was right around 10. So not too close, but, you know, they were more competitive than I think maybe we remember. Um but Embiid always has pretty good games against them. And he seems to really not that you have to worry about that cuz Embiid's going to get up for any game in the playoffs. But there always seems to be a little extra juice from his perspective on those matchups. Um you can deal with their guards although they've been shooting really well lately. Uh Detroit has from the perimeter as part of the reason why they're they're, you know, kind of playing well of late. But you can deal with their perimeter attack much more easily than you could. Um the Nets permanent attack i almost called them new jersey it hasn't been that for a very long time come on Derek, hit with the times but you can deal with that a lot more than you could the nets trio of of, of of really tough matchups and they they have you know they have caused the sixers a lot of problems and you've got russell now playing at a a pretty high level you've got dinwiddie back um laverse back like they're at they're at full strength and those guys have been like i said really really tough um Then that's been one of the more fun stories, I think, to watch. Like the way that they have exceeded expectations and the way that they have taken some gambles that have paid off for a team that had so few avenues to get to being relevant. You know, they, they, they've, they've been interesting to watch. Do I think the Sixers would win against them? Yeah, I do. Like, that's probably a five or a six game series. If the Sixers are playing at anywhere near their peak. And a lot of those games came earlier in the season when Sixers didn't have quite as many options to attack a guard heavy opponent, uh, which they now do and are very open to doing. Like the Sixers have been ISOing and posting up Harris and Butler more than if you had asked me a couple months ago more than I thought they would. So I think they would except for periods of that first half of the Boston game when, when when Harris floated a little bit. But they've I mean the Sixers now are better equipped to handle them. Um but they they would scare me more than the Pistons, but I think the Sixers should be able to handle either team, which is why they're the three seed, and the um, Nets and Pistons aren't. Yeah,
1: I agree with that. Um Really quick sidebar question: Whose future would you rather have the next five years, the Nets or the Lakers?
0: I trust the people running the Nets more than I trust the people running the Lakers.
1: It sounds crazy, but but I agree. I agree. It Even shouldn't be LeBron that way. James is on is on one of those teams. Yes. It's insane. That it just cuts it there. It is their dysfunction, but,
0: but how yeah, badly I mean, do you have to fuck that up part of my language? How badly do you have to screw that up to land LeBron James because you are LA and you have business opportunities? And to go out there and sign Rondo and Michael B it, it like we all sat here, every podcaster in basketball Twitter went, what in the world are you doing? And it went horribly. On top of that, LeBron looks human for the first time in his career with a pretty big injury and, you know, just looking like he's taking a legitimate step back. And, oh, by the way, they want to now go out and hire Jason Kidd. There's reports that Jason Kidd is at the top of their wish list as a coach. What are you doing? Like, you had – Literally, the king of basketball will fall in your lap, and they're going to screw it up. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's almost like maybe rather than hiring an agent and a businessman, you should have had somebody who's actually done that job before.
1: It is. It's unbelievable. Oof. I can't say I'm not enjoying it, but uh, oh, it's
0: great. It's fantastic. it's
1: fantastic. It was great. It was so great last summer when the meme got team was being assembled. Oh. <laughs> I think I saw somewhere that he scored like twenty eight points over the course of eleven games, something like that,
0: shooting like twenty percent from the field, yeah. yeah, yikes, way to go. You gave up a legitimate piece to get him to good job, good job, yeah, they
1: did they did um
0: yeah, no that that has been a fun story to watch unfold, and Brooklyn still now finally has their own draft picks, right, like they're out of that hell,
1: yes, right right when they finally the got
0: picks. good, they have their own draft picks, which is yeah. perfect timing. But what, what are you going to do? Be like, no, we don't want D'Angelo Russell to, you know, take a step forward. Um, you can't stop that. So yeah, I think they've made a lot of really smart moves on the margins that have worked out. And for a team that has, you know, had, really had so few options. And now they're going in there. Do they have room for one max slot or two this summer? I think it might be two. Uh,
1: Well, if they max D'Angelo Russell, then I think it's only one.
0: Okay. They would have to renounce him to have two.
1: I believe so. I could be wrong.
0: Um you know, but I mean everything from the um Dinwiddie renegotiation and extension, like they they've just they've they've made a lot of wise moves and they've consistently hit on those and all the props in the world because they started off from a disastrous starting point. So good for them. Good for them. Uh
1: totally. and I
0: would rather rather face the Pistons going back to the original question that we asked twenty minutes ago. Anything else?
1: Uh, no, not too much else. Just, uh, just gonna go back to enjoying the NCAA tournament.
0: There you go. There you go. Uh, I have a lot on DVR that I have to get to. I have not had a chance to fully dive in. Um, and Murray State is out. So what even is the point of college basketball <laughs> life anymore? But thank you for jumping on, Mike, and we will talk to you soon.
1: Sounds good. No problem. Track clientele,
0: my mic check is life or death, breathing a sniper's breath. I exhale the yellow smoke, a booter through righteous steps.